Welcome to Rebel Rebel. Today I have Kim Quartz on, and Kim and I go way back to the 90s. She was uh, a tough one to interview and to edit for me because I, I found out what it's like to interview someone who's super zen, super introspective, possibly seeming guarded, but really it's just that she's such a good, fair, balanced, non-judgmental listener that she's not putting a lot of energy out in the world about herself. So this is a lesson for me in how to be a better interviewer as well as to not judge a book by its cover. Anyway, I really would love to hear some comments about this one after you give a listen to my friend Kim Quartz. Hello and welcome to Revel Revel. This is Lauren Drabble and today I'll be talking to Kim Quartz. You can say hi. Hi, Lauren. <laughs> Since you've heard the other podcasts, you probably know that I usually say, well, do you want to explain how we know each other? But actually, if that's okay, I want to start off on that one. Okay. Okay. So Kim is special in that she is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast because all the time when Simon and I tell our How We Met story, you are featured in it. You and Diane are the only people featured in our How We Met story. Really? Yeah. And so, so I think about you all the time. We just got reconnected after like 20 years. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to go with 20. That sounds good. Yeah. So Kim and I know each other from doing a year of service in AmeriCorps in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I just wanted to give that sort of overview. You can talk about whatever you want as far as the how we know each other story. Well, I was thinking about how we met in AmeriCorps and what a great year that was, just that experience. And my first thought of when I met you was that you were the one who just had that really outgoing, you know, personality that kind of we can do it kind of drive. And I'm always kind of, you know, drawn to those types of people. So I knew that we were going to connect pretty well. And I was glad that we were in the same, the water quality team. Right. So I wasn't supposed to be in AmeriCorps, which then led me to meeting Simon. But I was supposed to be in school at UT Knoxville. And so I don't normally like just jump in with my stories, but because it's pertinent to us, I'm going to. Yeah. If you remember, which I don't expect you to, because I don't remember anything. Um, <laughs> I moved to Tennessee uh, sort of as a last resort. My parents were, had moved there when my, my dad had already been in Tennessee for over a year. And mm-hmm. then my mom was going to join him. And so I had a small child, a single parent, and I was like, oh, either I stay here in San Diego and try to figure out how to raise them with no support at all, or I moved to Tennessee. And my dad, I don't know who he talked to, but he supposedly talked to someone at UT and told them the situation that he had already been in Tennessee for a year and that I was coming you know, soon. And they assured him I was going to have residency, in-state residency. Oh. And so I get there and I go to register and they're like, you're not in-state, you have to pay out-of-state tuition. And I'm like, damn it, I knew that they were wrong. But, you know, that's what supposedly he was told. So then I had to find something to do for a year when I wasn't planning on getting a job and I had to figure something out. And I thought, well, I I definitely don't want a job that's a career type of a thing. I don't know what I want to do. And I just happened to find out about AmeriCorps. I had never heard of the program before, knew Mm -hmm. nothing about it. And when I found out that it was a definite ending date and that I could go back to school and use it for school and everything, I was like, yeah, okay, cool. But officially I was supposed to be at UT. I only had one year left. So it was a, it was a huge setback to wait another whole year. 
to have moved for no reason. I could have been done, you know, all that stuff. So anyway, I was just trying to make lemonade out of the lemons and I did. And I found you guys and it was awesome. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. So why were you in AmeriCorps? I don't remember. I'm sorry. That's okay. The reason I started was I had gone to UT in graduate school for a year. I was going to get my master's in French and I was going to teach high school. And I discovered in that year that I don't want to (laughs) teach. That is not my thing. (laughs) So I had gone to this, like a seminar type of thing, a little program about what do you want to do with your life? It's kind of a theme throughout my entire life is what am I going to do with myself? So the lady that was, that presented took my information and she called me a little later and told me about AmeriCorps. And I had mentioned that I was kind of interested in maybe some social work and doing social work. So she thought that would be a good fit and it would help with the educational allowance, you know, to, to be able to pay for going back to graduate school after AmeriCorps. So it sounded really cool. And like you said, I mean, the timing was perfect. It wasn't a long-term commitment. It was just kind of what I needed that school year, basically, to get me through and so I could start the program the next fall. And so after AmeriCorps, did you go back to school? I did, yeah. I worked on the application all through the year, AmeriCorps year, and had my interview for the program for the MSW program at UT. And then I got in. And so that next fall after AmeriCorps ended, I started that program. It was a two-year program. You're an MSW then? Yes. I'm an MSW. I actually am licensed independent at this point. So I can do like clinical private practice type of counseling. Yeah. So I've been doing it for a while. So for people like me who have a vague understanding of what you really do, what what do you really do? Like the bread and butter type of activities? It's varied. That's I think why some people have trouble understanding what social workers do is because they do so many different things. The main idea in general is to help people find resources, connections that they need to help them live better lives. That can be, you know, through counseling. It can be through, you know, referrals. It can just be through building a relationship with them and building relationships with various uh, programming in your area, or there's just a lot of different ways. So the past several years, I've worked mostly with older adults and caregivers. So, you know, the focus there is on kind of emotional well-being, stress management. You know, it's hard to be a caregiver to someone with dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that. You know, there's a lot they have to deal with, a lot of grief along with the day-to-day stuff. So, you know, we focused a lot on that and just helping them to keep going. Nice. And you're in Iowa, right? I am currently in Iowa. Yes. What town? Davenport. Okay. Okay. We're known as the Quad Cities. We're right on the Mississippi River. I know that that's not just around the corner from Nebraska, but I'm sure you've heard of Mary Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer. Yes, absolutely. Yes. yes, I have read some of her books. Good, me too. I really like her books and I really like a lot of her approach to caring for the elderly and your parents. You didn't start out though dealing with the elderly population. You were probably all over throughout your career, right? Yeah, I like most social workers when they start out, it just seems to, you kind of just seem to go with like working with kids. So I started out working with kids. I worked uh, with teenagers who were running away and kind of did some family stuff with them and helped them, you know, to stay home and work on issues. And, And then I worked in the school system for a while. And then, you know, it was weird after I had kids myself, which took a little while. So I worked for a quite a while with with kids. But after I had my own, I just couldn't, I don't know, I just couldn't do it anymore. It was just too much for me or something just to to work with kids and then come home and be with my kids and not like worry about like hearing all the stuff that goes on with kids. It was hard for me not to bring that home and be like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And it was hard for me to, to separate that. Yeah, I get that totally. When my son was an infant and toddler, I was working at a preschool. And when I would come home, I'd have no energy for him. I had to quit that because I was like, no, I need to give all the energy I'm giving to these kids to him. I knew I was shortchanging him. So I hear you. 
Yeah. And then I had worked a lot with kids who had experienced trauma, who had been like PTSD and just hearing, you know, kind of being bearing witness to their traumas. It was just, oh, it was just too much. So. Right. But I picture that you're the type of person who I would want to turn to and be like, oh my God, help me. Let me tell you all this crap. So (laughs) do you feel like people just coming to you and dumping on you all the time? Not really. I mean, people do find that they tell me stuff that they don't normally tell other people, Mm -hmm. which is one thing I was thinking about doing this podcast with you is like, I wonder if we'll just end up talking more about Lauren because I'm not used to, I'm used to being the one listening. (laughs) Ah, well, I've already talked more today than I normally do. So that's funny. I had a different reason though. Right. So when you heard what the theme was, you know, these stories in our lives that, you know, like Simon and my, like, I'm not supposed to be here and yet we met type of a thing or weird, serendipitous, fateful things. You know, when you heard about that, what came to your mind? I thought about this. It's more of a current thing. You know, we've been talking about I'm a social worker and the work that I've been doing, but I'm actually transitioning out of being a social worker, doing some training, like to do virtual assistant work, because I found that especially during this quarantine time, (laughs) well, first, before the quarantine last year, my husband and I separated and then we had this, the quarantine and that was it just started to, I just started to realize I need to take charge. I want to be able to be where I need to be. I need to be, if I need to travel, if I need to be somewhere with my kids, I need some kind of a job that is going to allow me to just set my schedule, do what I need to do when I can do it, and then be there for my kids as well. Or, you know, if I want to travel back my parents live in Tennessee and, you know, they're getting a little older. Maybe I want to be able to get back there more or just travel and I can work while I'm traveling. So all of this kind of came together and I had time during the beginning of the quarantine because I couldn't work. Because right now what I do is I go to nursing homes and I uh, uh, provide right. mental health for residents. So I couldn't go to any of them. So I had a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just kind of the way it all kind of came together. That was my first thought when you were talking about coincidences or kind of how it all just kind of led me to where I'm at now. So transitioning to what you'll be doing, why that? How'd that come up? Um, Well, I was kind of ready to make a change. been doing social work for over 20 years and I just wasn't finding kind of what I needed, the flexibility I needed. And I was just ready to not be, I don't know, I I wanted to do something that had like a tangible outcome. Mm. I felt like that would be more satisfying for me. And like that was maybe the part that was hard for me, you know, why I was kind of burning out a little bit with social work and what I was doing. I did this email course that kind of helped me kind of drill down on that a little bit and what specifically I was looking for. So the tangible element was definitely there. And then, you know, there's just a lot of out there right now. I did a lot of research and looking into things and it looked to me like the virtual assistant route was a pretty good way to go. I mean, you can kind of specialize in different things, but a lot of people need it and are looking for it. So I felt like it would be a pretty marketable kind of skill set to have. So what is a virtual assistant? It's basically like what you would have as an administrative assistant, but virtually. So a lot of people who are basically businesses online or entrepreneurs and small businesses, they will pay, you know, somebody, they don't have to pay for an office space. They don't have to, you know, do a lot of stuff, but they can pay you. And like the things I'm training for to do like social media management, because so many people are driving their businesses through social media, blog writing, project management, newsletters, a lot of things like that. Just kind of the basic whatever somebody needs done that they don't really have time to do, you know, like, especially with entrepreneurs who are trying to build their business or they're, they're going out and doing public speaking or their brand or whatever you want to call it. They don't have time to do that other stuff, you know, so you're kind of there to support them, to help them grow. So have you already started that or when do you start? 
So I've been doing this training. It was a 90 day training and going through these different courses. And I'm work, I'm starting to build like my Facebook business page, my all those business pages, the Instagram, the Pinterest. I'm gonna and starting to look for people like to do testimonial, you know, to do free work. <laughs> you know, to build up the testimonials and the reviews and that kind of thing. So my goal is to hopefully have one or two jobs by the end of the summer, just to kind of get started and get established a little bit. And then once you are, then you'll retire from social work. Yes. 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 Okay. So you said that it's just a big time of change in your life with the divorce, with the phasing out one career and starting another one. Yeah. Did you feel it while it was happening or did it just sort of become clear to you like, wow, this is a, this is a big change period in my life? That's a good question. I think I felt it while it was happening just because I'm kind of naturally just kind of analytical or introspective. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about what's happening and what I'm experiencing and what does it mean? And <laughs> so you know, I was aware of all the changes and then it just kind of led me to kind of decide that it felt like everything was happening to me. Oh, okay. And I wasn't, I was tired of that. So I decided after thinking about all these changes that were happening, but none of them were my idea. (laughs) This wasn't like, you know, in my plan at all. So that's another reason why I kind of felt like I just want to take control. I'm going to be in charge of me and what I'm doing and in my life and in my career. And, and I have to remind myself a lot. I mean, it is a change and it's hard to change when you're used to one way. So, you know, I don't know if you noticed that I had put up, I had posted like one of the things in this virtual assistant training is like making all these different graphics and everything. So I've Mm -hmm. been practicing and playing around with that. So I um, made a graphic and put a a quote by Brene Brown on there. Oh, okay. No, I missed that. I'll have to go look. Um, And the quote is, I'm probably going to get it wrong, but it's something to the effect of you can choose change or comfort or no courage or comfort. Anyway, you can't have both. Yeah. It's courage. It's courage or comfort. I remember. So, but you can't have both. So that's kind of been my go-to reminder that I want the courage and not the comfort right now. So you looking back, you were more passive. Things were happening to you. What made the change for you to say, I don't want to do that anymore? What was the point where you said, I want to be in charge? Well, it was, I would get, I mean, well, I know that it was my marriage ended that kind of, that's a big kick in the pants (laughs) for anybody. But it wasn't mutual. It came from him. It did. I think that you know, looking back, I am, this is going to sound weird probably to some people, but I'm kind of grateful that he had the courage to say, you know, this isn't working. And I think, you know, I need to move on. And, you know, once I had a little bit of distance from that initial shock, I kind of realized, you know, I, I really wasn't terribly happy. I just didn't know it. (laughs) I probably would have never done that. You know, I I would have never decided to just end things. But now, you know, there's an opportunity there. And I'm gonna, you know, it just made me decide that it's time to take over (laughs) for myself. How did it get to be so how did you get to be so passive in your own life is I guess my question. Was it the typical mom not putting herself first kind of a thing? Well, I don't know if you remember in AmeriCorps. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of just me. That's a little bit my personality, which is why a lot of times I am drawn to people who are a little more outgoing and, you know, take charge and life and, you know, just take advantage of everything that comes their way because I don't tend to do that. But I, I like that energy, you know, it just isn't something, it's just not me or it wasn't me. I'm trying to be more that way. But I mean, it's just been like a personality trait or kind of thing. But then, you know, you've been, you're a mom, that kind of happens where, and I was perfectly happy with doing that, with letting the kids take over, you know, trying to let, put myself not quite up there, quite at the top, because I was so grateful, you know, for the kids. And, you know, they were just so fun. And 
So it was really easy to, to let that go, to not be thinking of anything I needed. <laughs> yeah. How old are the kids now? Um, my son, he's going to be 12 next week. And my daughter is 13. She'll be 14 in August. Okay. So they're really close in age. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do kind of feel weird when I talk to people about the theme about when you are looking at your life, maybe stories or patterns or momentous occasions or whatever. And I questioned if I should use the words, the universe is sort of making things happen, almost conspiring against you because It's always something like, well, I wasn't even looking for that just sort of happened, just sort of land my lap or whatever. And I, I, I wrestle with that idea that, you know, we should be in control of our lives and I want you to be empowered and all that, not be passive in your life. But on the other hand, I also feel like it's silly pride that makes us think that we're in control of our lives to at least a certain extent that there are things that you cannot control. Oh, absolutely. It just just happens. So it's a war between those two concepts for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I say I want to kind of take control, it's more of like control over my schedule, you know, my flexibility, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Absolutely. One thing that I, I tell people a lot, you know, that I'm my clients and things and we focus on and even with the kids is that whole idea of your circle of control and your circle of influence. Are you familiar with that? No, please expand on that. So I think it's from St- the seven habits of highly successful people. Stephen Covey. Yep. Yeah. So there's your circle of control. And so what you have control over, and that's basically you, <laughs> you have control over eating and, you know, moving your body and that kind of thing. And then there's your circle of influence that you don't have control over. You might be able to suggest or encourage or, you know, have some little bit of impact on them. You know, if it's a person, a friend, a kid, you know, whatever, you can't control, obviously, anybody, but you might be able to influence them. So there's that circle. And then there's everything else. And the everything else is pretty big that you just can't control. Yeah. And it's so much better to kind of try to, for me anyway, remember that. Remember what do I have control over is basically me. <laughs> um, because if you, you're putting all that energy into trying to make other things or other people the way you want them just makes you so unhappy and tired. I mean, and in a lot, and it's, it's not unusual. People do it. You just, you want things, you have an idea of what, how things should be that should word. <laughs> It's a bad word. <laughs> yes. I know. I had a coworker and she was awesome because she was a hospice nurse oh. and hospice nurses don't play, you know, <laughs> they just tell things the way they are yeah. with a very morbid sense of humor and mm-hmm. everything. And she was like, oh, you have got to let go of that word should. Your life will be so much better. Mm-hmm. You just get rid of that word. Yeah. Absolutely. It is. I I ban that word. (laughs) You ban that word in your, like your personal life as well as your, with your clients. Yes. Or with my kids, you know, I try to catch, I catch it, you know, and be like, no, I got to think that through again. That's not, mm -mm, there are no shoulds. (laughs) So what do you tell people to use instead or how to think instead? Well, uh, let's see. It's, it's very, specific to whatever it is that they're kind of focused on. It's more like, rather than saying this should be this way, you know, maybe I would like it to be this way, but it isn't. And here's how I'm going to deal with it. Here's how I'm going to cope. Okay. That makes sense. Because if that's how you're feeling, you don't want to just pretend like you don't feel that way because that's not going to help either. So acknowledge that that's what you would like. But you also have to figure out how you're going to be okay with that not happening or being that way. Right. Okay. So with that in mind, when Kim thinks about herself and talks about herself, <laughs> what, does that, what does that look like to you? Hmm. No shoulds, obviously. Right. So when I talk about myself, just like now when we're talking. Sure. Yeah. Um, so like I said, I don't like really you, talk about myself a whole lot. This is weird for me. So, but that's my point, you know, how, when you do, 
when you think that you have an opportunity to, I I don't want to say should, (laughs) what does it look like when Kim gets to focus on herself? Hmm. And I don't mean self-care, although there's an aspect to it, Mm -hmm. but just self-centered in a good way. Right. Yeah. Kind of self-aware or... Yeah. Well, right now, uh, when I am focused on myself, it's really goal-oriented right now because of all the ways I'm, you know, all the different changes going on and, you know, I'm focused on when... I need to do what and, you know, my timeline and different, you know, all these things that I have planned or, you know, trying to work toward, I guess, you know, I don't really focus on myself a lot still, but I do pray a lot. So that's kind of my, my way of focusing on me or talking about me is just kind of looking for, you know, again, I have this, I want to be in control in some ways. I want to make my own decisions and not have things made for me, but the main thing is just to kind of be okay, you know, working towards that, working towards goals, trying to feel like they're, mm, I don't know, that's not where I wanted to say, having goals, but not being so incredibly committed to them that I can't see an alternate path or, you know, not being rigid. Gotcha, Um, right. So prayer kind of helps me with that, just to have more wisdom rather than just focus. Does that make sense? Yeah. So would you mind sharing your typical, you said you pray a lot. So what is that? What does that mean? (laughs) Like, do you have like a, every morning I do from this time to this time type of a thing? No. And I've, you know, a lot, that's a relative term. I'm sure. Yeah, totally. People pray all throughout the day and they have their little breath prayers. And, you know, I try to just make sure that I am in touch once a day, just kind of usually in the morning because I have more time because I wake up and the kids are still asleep. And so I have a little bit of time there and just to kind of think about, you know, what I'm thankful for, what I need some encouragement or strength for that day or I haven't always been really consistent with it. <laughs> so it's always been self-directed as well. Yeah. Not like you're working through a, a devotional or something. No, no. I mean, I've read like The Purpose Driven Life. I read that. I really liked it. And it really did have an impact when I read it. So I'm glad you brought up prayer because I think, you know, spirituality means different things to different people. and. It seems tied, though, to me with the whole view of the universe. And so I'm wondering how your view of spirituality has changed over time. Mm. Well, that is a huge question, Lauren. I know. (laughs) You really get in there, don't you? I know. It's a big one because Um, it's one of those overview of life sort of topics. Yeah. It is. Well, I was raised as in a Southern Baptist church. I don't know what that tells you, but, and for right, for whether this was the reality or if it was just the way it struck me as a kid, it was always more like fear-based or just kind of very anxiety inducing <laughs> of everything I was doing wrong <laughs> in the world. And again, I mean, some of that's me, just my own personal weirdness. So it's definitely changed from that. And it took some time and I kind of didn't go to church for a while or, you know, I wasn't really until I was able to grow up a little and kind of see it as in a different way that it's not like all punishment. We're not expected to be perfect. We are who we are and it's okay. So it's not like you don't deserve, you know, I can pray even though I'm being, you know, I'm doing something maybe not great or it doesn't matter. I'm not being constantly judged or, you know, the world isn't against me or I didn't really think that it was just, it's just a little more things are, it's more accepting. I feel more like it's acceptance rather than right or wrong. Do you still go to us like a Southern Baptist type of a church there in Iowa? No, I don't. I don't know if they have Southern Baptists here. I mean, I guess they would. They're everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mostly had been going to a Methodist church and then I haven't gone anywhere because we haven't had church. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. So your Methodist church was accepting? Yes. 
and that just feels better to me. Just, I, I, I'm very uncomfortable. It makes me very uncomfortable. Any kind of judging of other people or I just, I don't deal well with that. So it's important to have spiritual kind of organization or, you know, uh, the religion that I practice to be not judgy. Yeah. It just, it stresses me out. I feel horrible all the time and I can't, yeah, I can't, I can't deal can't with it. can't function in that system. So yeah. does your pastor, your community know about the divorce? Are they accepting of that? Yeah. Yeah. That wouldn't, that's, that's good because. Yeah, that was never, but yeah, no, there, there are plenty of people <laughs> in the same situation. So Right. And yet so many churches preach against it and tell the woman to stay with the man and all that bullshit that I can abide. Yeah, it's true. And you know, that was part, that's kind of my mindset is why I never would have initiated any kind of a change in the marriage because that was my mindset. It's like, you're married, you stay married. You know, like you work through it. My thinking was, okay, maybe things aren't great this very minute, but we all have rough patches and, you know, that kind of thing. But it's okay. I have to keep telling myself that, though. It's okay. This isn't like a horrible thing. Like for a while, it was like I have failed. Yeah. Yeah. That's common reaction. Yeah. So what other... When I asked you about the theme, you know, you said that it really seemed to hit on the now, like what you're going through now. So does that mean prior to all of this time of change, as you look back, you really didn't see much of that happening? You know, the universe doing things in your life before now? No, I don't. I mean, I think I did or I have. Um, It's just the, you know, recency effect where I, you know, can most that just comes to mind first. But I think, you know, even talking about being in AmeriCorps and how that all worked out where I was thinking I was going to do this teaching thing, which was not good. And I just happened to find this little class to take of, you know, basically, what do you want to do with your life? And it just kind of led to that. And then that led to me being able to afford to go to graduate school and get my master's and just kind of one thing opening up just different paths opening to kind of lead you to where you were wanting to be. Even if you didn't know that's where you wanted to be sometimes, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, talking about those paths, taking the paths. And you said, even if they're not ones that you knew were there, kind of my neighbor was talking about, you know, this time and how everything's kind of uncertain and you want to just you know, if you have something, if there's an opportunity or something you're kind of want to explore a little bit, that why not just do it? It doesn't hurt to to try something new or even if it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Anyway, it was just an interesting conversation that she was we were having about about the paths that you take. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's funny that the COVID has definitely change the world and open up new paths, close some paths, you know, whatever that people didn't, they've been able to change their thinking about lots of things. I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of a survival skill. (laughs) The being flexible like that, you mean? Being able to adapt to the differences that we're currently experiencing. I just feel like the people who are having trouble with that are having the most trouble emotionally and just everything. How... As a person who does counseling, when you see all this stuff going on in the world and you see people struggling to not being able to adapt, what do you do? What do you say? Do you wait until you ask, you're asked for advice or do you, do you just want to say, look, this is what's going on and this is what you're struggling with and try to help them realize or, or, you know, or is that too intrusive? You know, that really depends on the person. Some people are receptive to a little more directive feedback, more reality-based kind of approaches like that, where you would just say, you know, I mean, we, this is again, something we can't change. Um, You can fight it and get nowhere and be frustrated, or you can try to figure out how to adapt. Some people respond to that and really like that. And other people are so entrenched that they're not ready to hear the other options yet. Right. They just need to be able to express themselves. <laughs> right, right. They, so it, it depends. They're locked into the why should I adapt, yeah. I bet. Right. So as a 
social worker still. And I'm sure that no matter when you stop, you'll have social worker brain and gut reactions to things for a long time. But, you know, I'm sure you've heard about the movement to defund the police and put more money into education, social workers, clinicians of different type, you know, community resources for Mm -hmm. people. What's, what's your take on that? I will say that I have heard, but not in detail. So what my take is, it might not be a very educated response at this point, but my initial response, just kind of hearing what you just said, I think making, having those other resources, some police departments have social workers and I think they could use them more for different situations that they're trained a little differently to de-escalate situations. I know police officers are trained for that too, but they have a lot to do in their work. So I don't really see the harm in trying to find those other positions like social workers or mediators or counselors or you know teachers or whatever that can help address some of the issues you know a little more appropriately or you have this mindset of this is what a police officer is and again it's kind of like I think that a different occupation you know somebody in a different career, or that's not the word I want to use, but I can't think of the word, would be able to handle the issue better, some of the issues better. Right. So I don't really, you know, I the, the whole defund the police department, that's a very dramatic uh, way of putting it, I think. So it kind of adds all this, oh my gosh, people just want to react to that. You know, they're taking defund and thinking, oh, we're not going to have a police department or, you know, So I don't like to really go with that phrase when I'm talking about this, but I'm just saying, I think that there are a lot of other systems that are better prepared and better equipped to deal with some situations that policemen find themselves having to deal with. I think that it's more appropriate. Yeah, I totally agree. And the problem is that you don't get called to scenes, you know, which you could take care of, which. I'm sure. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is, you know, I know that there are some police departments that have social workers, as I was saying, I don't think they use them quite as effectively and they might not have the funding for it or whatever. But yeah, I think that there's a lot of, you know, we could just be a little more innovative and creative about how we do things. Well, agreed. And I'm sure that there are exceptions to the rule that there's little podunk towns that have, you know, just the sheriff, but by and large, they're well-funded, the police across the country, and they could put the money into the social worker and not into lots of things that they do, Mm -hmm. like, you know, violent weapon. So I just wanted to ask you because you're kind of in the hot seat about like, can someone like you, someone in your profession and your qualifications actually help make the system work better? That's the question on the table, you know, and if the answer is yes, then you should get the money, you know? (laughs) Yep. Social workers don't get a lot of money. (laughs) No. It's not been our strength at all, but yeah. I know. I wish that you guys did get more money. Do you have a union? Well, they have the National Association of Social Workers and they have lobbyists and, you know, all of that stuff. They, they do what they can do, but it's just a basic fact of life. We don't produce anything, you know, that is that people find value in, unfortunately, you know, we're not like a company that produces business, you know, cars or whatever, you know, those businesses where you make money, social workers aren't in that kind of a world like teachers, people don't value what we kind of are producing, which is functioning human beings. But, right. And that's why the world is the way it is, because we don't have our values, right? right. Yeah. I mean, we don't yeah. make money. You know, we don't do a service that make, generates money. So we don't get that money back. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we need to figure out a way of putting a dollar on functional wellness for people. Right. You know, I read lots of books about how do you gauge countries' policies and how they're working, you know, in the happiness studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've seen those happiness yes, studies. Yes. And have you ever heard of the book Geography of Bliss? No. I highly recommend it. I love that okay. book. Okay. 
Geography of Bliss uh, is a reporter. His name is Eric Weiner, and he went all over the world to some of the, quote, happy places on the happiness mm-hmm. index and then to some of the unhappiest. And Bhutan, the country, is talking about having a, instead of the gross domestic product mm-hmm. of, you know, output right. you know that you can measure with money they are actually trying to create their gross domestic happiness okay interesting yeah and trying to measure right. that in some way or yeah you know the measurement is the hard part actually and i'll butcher if i go into any of their metrics <laughs> i don't believe they had many at the yeah. time and it's totally different cuz it's not a democracy it's a monarchy but you know the point is that they value that and they they want to figure out how to make that a priority and if you elevate it to say it's just as important as producing an iphone for an example Mm -hmm. then you can say we have a system that is actually beneficial for our citizens not just because what what was your phrase that you said that we don't care about having a well-functioning society something like that Right. We don't value that as much as generating money. (laughs) Exactly. I think if anything that COVID slash the Black Lives Matter movement have taught us this year is that we got to get our priorities straight. Yeah, I agree. I think we need to, yeah, first start to figure out if we can agree on priorities. (laughs) That's the hard part. Yeah. And it's funny because until I read a book called The Nordic Theory of Everything, I hadn't really thought about how your morality, your view of what should, and this is the word, the time that you need the word should be, that this is the world we want to create. This is the should we want to live in. That dictates everything else. Hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking that through a little bit. Yeah, take your time. (laughs) Letting that sink in. Yeah. Yeah. I know. At first I was like, no, morality, that's a, I don't know. It felt at the time like that was the wrong word. I don't know. At the time, I think it felt like a holier than thou kind of a word, like I'm better Uh, than you. My morals are better than yours, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. it's funny. I don't really remember how and when that changed besides that one book to get me to the point that it was struggling to think of how I used to think about it. Yeah. Cause oh, I don't, okay. I don't see morality as that bad word anymore. So somewhere you made a shift yeah. in what that yeah. word meant to you or what it could mean. Mm-hmm. Right. Because like you were saying about mm-hmm. spirituality and religion, when it's prescribed to be a certain way, then at some point you have to say, yes, I accept that or no, I why? Why? No, it does not have to be that way. It can be this other way, this mm-hmm. better way. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. What was that book called? You're going to put all these in the little notes, right? So I can go I back. I am. <laughs> yeah. So the one about that he travels around, and I mentioned that Bhutan is called Geography of Bliss. Mm-hmm. And then the how to look at your system of government and policies and everything, that came from a book called The Nordic Theory of Everything. Okay. Her name is Finnish. The Finnish language is incomprehensible. I'm not going <laughs> to try to say her name at all. But but she lived in the states for a while, and then oh. and then went back to Finland and was able to do a compare and contrast of two different systems, which is really really good. Yeah. Since you know you mentioned not being able to continue working with kids when you have kids because it's just too heavy. So I'm wondering what does a social worker read or watch or whatever for fun? Like, do you still end up reading things that are like meaningful, even if they're a little heavy, or is it total escapism? You know, it really depends. I can do a little bit of heavy, a little bit of deep, but I do have to balance it a lot with kind of very light, funny things just to kind of balance my own self and my own thoughts and feelings a little bit. So like two of the books that I've read recently that I really, really enjoyed, but they were a little bit, they weren't terribly lighthearted, <laughs> but the the characters just kind of meant a lot, you know, kind of were impactful. I'm sure you've read them both. The Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Yes, I love that book. It was so good. It's hard to read, 
you know, there are parts that are kind of hard to read when you don't understand what's going on with her, but really good. And then the other one was something that now I can't remember what it was called. Yeah, it was a Reese, Reese Witherspoon pick. Was it Crawdads? Yes. I knew it. When you said about how the characters were impactful, I went, oh, yeah. she's going to say Crawdads. Yep. And then you said, and I bet you read them both. I bet, nope. <laughs> You didn't read I, um, that one? No. Well, first of all, you know, I work in a used bookstore. We have very right. few new books. Okay. And the second that crawdads would come in, and go right back out. But I, I almost always avoid anything that's super popular just because I'm like, Bleh. yeah. normally, not always, but normally if it's super popular, it's crap. Yeah. And it's just one of those, as I've heard more and more about it in depth, instead of people just gushing in a, oh my God, mm-hmm. you've got to read it kind of a way. Right. I went, okay, it does sound more complex than I first heard that it was. Yeah. And so I definitely um, will get around to it. It's just back burnering right now. Sure. I've got it on order from the library for the audio. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm happy to wait. I'm happy right. to wait. Yeah, yeah. So- no, I agree with you about the, you know, the the bestsellers aren't always really, I'm not really drawn to those, but that one, yeah, that one was good. So let's go back to Eleanor, just because of the social worker type of thing. As a social worker, I bet you read that book entirely differently than I did, where you're like, I want to get her proper help. Like, what did you think of her phone call um, appointments? Did you think she was getting the help that she needed throughout the book? Well, no, I mean, not initially. I don't think, yeah, she wasn't really getting any help at all. They just kind of, it was just kind of a, oh, that's just the way she is. But because we didn't know a lot about what was going on, I was more fascinated, like, what is going on with her? Like, what kind of, I wasn't trying to diagnose, but I was trying to kind of figure out, like, you know, maybe she's just wired a little differently and, you know, has some, definitely lacks some social skills. And, you know, like, how is this? how did this come to be? And, you know, it was more of that kind of exploration for me to try to figure all that out. I know some people read it and they couldn't get through it because she was annoying to them, Hmm. but I was fascinated by her. (laughs) Yeah. Now it's funny. You've, you were saying I was trying not to diagnose her and that is just another word for judging in my head and you hate judging. Have you ever done Myers-Briggs? Yes. Yes. So I'm INTJ and J is for judgmental. I'm INFP. (laughs) And that makes more sense. The feeling totally. And I think, oh, that's right. right. We did Myers-Briggs together in AmeriCorps. Yep. Yeah, we did. Did you get the same score way back then or, you know, whatever you want to call score, but as opposed to the most recent time you've done it? Yes. I'm pretty much always INFP. Yep. My whole life. (laughs) So I was ENTJ back then. And yeah. I mean, I'm still, you know, on the edge, but back then we didn't understand the difference between extroverts and introverts and that mm-hmm. being with other people or too many people or the wrong type of crowd or whatever is so draining to me. I didn't understand that back then. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely maybe 65% I, mm-hmm. only 35% <laughs> E. Um, so what made you so, I guess, anti-judgmental for lack of a better term? I don't know if there was like one thing. I think part of it is just environmental, you know, like people being around people who are kind of judgmental and my, you know, growing up around that, not that I have judgmental family or anything, but just experience of seeing judgmental people or my, my, reaction is to go the complete opposite. I just can't. It's just, yeah, it's just my rate. My initial reaction is no, I can't do that. That just doesn't, that does, that feels really wrong. It feels bad. Yeah. I don't know. I couldn't say there was one specific thing. And as a person who does counseling for other people, have you ever had a counselor, therapist, whatever you want to call them? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's kind of important if you're going to try to do any kind of counseling with others that you experience it yourself. And, you know, everybody has some need for that. So it's not as if it was just, oh, I have to do this. Anybody can benefit from some therapy from time to time. So 
So it sounds like it was almost part of your training to be a social worker that they made you go through counseling. They didn't. It was, you know, talked about that it's helpful. And I went, when I moved, when we moved up to Iowa, I started going just for a little bit and it was, we were having trouble getting pregnant and it was just kind of a lot of feelings about that and everything. But when I was in graduate school, we did do group therapy. It was a class, but we actually did group therapy. Like we were the the group. So wow. yeah, it was interesting. I don't know if I've ever heard someone say that they've done that before. I mean, people go to group therapy for say, I don't know, AA or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't think I've ever heard it like a class. Ooh, tell me all about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it was a class. We had to take it to get our degree. We, you know, we took individual counseling. We took family counseling and in the group counseling, we, the class was split into two groups. So we would alternate and I could be remembering this not quite perfectly, but, you know, so one class, one group would be up kind of in the circle with our teacher slash therapist. Then the other group would be observing and we would kind of go back and forth. You know, we would do like a check-in and people would just have an opportunity to talk. And a lot of times, you know, it was more about what we were experiencing in our clinical work. So it was kind of a good opportunity because some people had some really tough experiences in their clinical work and it was a good way for them to kind of process it and work through it and figure out, you know, what it all meant for them and how they were going to deal with it. But yeah, it was, it was a really different experience for a class, but you know, it wasn't like the only way we would have failed is if we didn't come, Mm -hmm. you know? So it wasn't like there was pressure to say anything, you know, say the right thing or anything like that. I mean, we had like an exam just about process and how do you run a group and, you know, various little, um, terminologies and and theories and things like that. But essentially we weren't really graded on our group work. It was just part of the learning process. (laughs) So were people really vulnerable or were they guarded? You know, everybody really kind of put themselves out there. So I don't know if that's just because we were all social workers. (laughs) I mean, I was probably... It took me a while personally, you know, not everybody was just ready to jump right in there, but we all did got to work on, you know, whatever. So, and did people use it as a time to bring up like childhood traumas and stuff, or were they in general focusing on what they were going through in their clinicals? You know, the only two that stand out in particular were experiences that they were having in their clinical experience, their clinical uh, work you know, a little bit of that was what their past, you know, what they were bringing to the the experience from, from their past. But you said that you remember too, but none, none of those were yours. Well, I remember mine too. Mine was just, uh-huh. you know, my uh, clinical work. I don't know. I just didn't have a lot of issues coming up around that. So mine was more like assertiveness and that kind of thing. But the two that were mostly impactful in my memory, you know, of others were from, you know, really strong experiences they'd had. And impactful to you. Why then, if it didn't really trigger something from your own life? The first one was, it was just a very, it was like, oh my gosh, we're all new social workers. And this was, you know, the thing, what she was experiencing was like the worst case scenario. (laughs) What we all were like, scared of, you know, like with people feeling like you can't help them or can't save them in this particular situation, you know, so that one was like, I think we all were just, oh my gosh. And then to kind of experience watching her with our therapist slash teacher, (laughs) helping her to be able to get through that, to even be able to talk about it without breaking down, you know, just all of those techniques and just being right there. It was really raw you know, that's the kind of thing that's going to stick with you. My guess is that anybody in that class probably still thinks of that one. Wow. Yeah. So what's been the toughest thing you've had to deal with as a social worker and how has it impacted your life? I, yeah, that is, it's so hard to think of the one thing, you know, after all these years and these different populations I've worked with and just in different ways, you know, being a therapist more or the, you know, a supportive counselor, or, you know, just different things. It's really hard to, to specify one. I don't know. You know, I think the working with the, the trauma 
and loss with kids, I mean, that was probably pretty, that was a big thing. That was pretty impactful, just even in the way I view life, you know, helping these kids kind of with the trauma that they've experienced, you know, whether they witnessed or it definitely does change your life view. Do you remember what your life view was sort of before versus now? I think it just wasn't as enlightened or wasn't as aware. So it wasn't, it was more a change in that it broadened rather than it went from one thing to another, just opened up a little bit more kind of the world or, you know, how we are people who we're resilient. We have lots of strength. We're not fragile. Even the little ones that you think are pretty fragile, but they can, they can be okay too. So do you think you were sheltered before getting into social work? Yeah, I think so for sure. I mean, it wasn't like I was totally shocked by anything, but you know, I just, just didn't know. (laughs) You don't know what you don't know. (laughs) Right. And you don't know that you don't know it. Right. Exactly. But I think there's a lot of stuff that you know of in that you've heard of it, but it's Mm -hmm. not the same thing as experiencing it. Absolutely not. Obviously that's a bummer to end on that note. So we can't stop there. (laughs) (laughs) So what else do you want to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't want to give away um, any kind of future stories that you have for this podcast about you and Simon, but I did want to tell you that I have thought about you guys a lot recently. I think just because we reconnected and just how kind of part of this whole courage thing has made me think about just your relationship and the way you approached it and like just kind of new. You know what I mean? Like, again, I don't want to tell a lot of your story, you know, that you might have plans for later. Well, you know, it's funny that you should mention that because when I was starting the podcast, the idea was that at least I could have one guest in person, which is him (laughs) because (laughs) everybody else is remote. And so Simon was like, all right, so are we talking? Are we, are you ready for me? And I'm like, you know, I no, I'm just going to jump in with other people. And so I need to schedule him because I, there's so many people out there who do want to hear the story of how we met. Yeah. And we don't tell people unless we're together because it's a two-part story, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. And, and I thought, well, if nothing else, we could do that whole song and dance on here one day. Yeah. And, But then once I realized that you were coming up in my timeline, I thought to myself, wow, it would be funny to to hear Kim's version of the same story. (laughs) I probably don't even have enough memory. I just have these various images and kind of almost like snippets. (laughs) Well, what I think we should do so that I don't color your version is that we should have some sort of, a, I'll, I'll talk to this time and we'll try to figure it out. We record our part and you record your, what you remember, and then we put them together and we, and then we get together the three of us uh-huh. and, and listen to each other's parts uh, and then, yeah. di- and then dissect it and see. Yeah, that would be fun. So just don't get to mention between now and whenever that is. <laughs> I will do my best. <laughs> Okay, good. But it's funny that you said that thinking about us kind of helped you prepare for this podcast Mm -hmm. in a way. And that's, that's super interesting to me. And I think you use the word courage. Can you just elaborate on that part of it? I I don't think I can wait until whenever for that part. (laughs) Well, you know, that's kind of been, yeah, that's been my theme here um, for the past six, 12 months. Just that you, there was no hesitation really. Like it was something you knew and you trusted and you went with. And a lot of people, I mean, at the time, you know, there was a little bit of from your, your AmeriCorps team members, some concern. You probably remember that. Um, Yeah. Simon remembers it too. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So that's just kind of my memory that, and it kind of goes back to the you know, talk I was having with my neighbor about, you know, you just kind of have to, sometimes you just kind of have to go with what you think, you know, and just embrace it, you know, which is kind of what I've always thought. That's kind of how I always think about you and you and Simon. And I think it's really cool. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, for telling us about yourself and 
what you're going through with this courage thing. Well, thanks for having me. You're very easy to talk to. So you do a good job with this. Well, thank you. I was worried I wouldn't have anything to say. (laughs) Oh my goodness. No, you totally do. But it's funny that almost everyone talks about Brene Brown at some point and you Mm -hmm. did and courage is your word. And so you are going to be just another one where we mentioned Brene Brown on the list. Yeah. Well, people might get the hint that the universe is saying, hey, read her. Maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what this is all about. (laughs) That's right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. It's great to see you. Yeah. And thanks for being on. Bye. Bye.